0: Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills Podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. All right, as you are finding your way back to your seats, welcome. Uh, Good morning. Glad that you're enjoying talking to each other so much. It'd be awkward if we did this and everybody just stood still and no one spoke to you. So I'm glad we're getting to say hello this morning. Uh, Welcome. If you are a guest with us, be sure to grab that blue connection card you see in your seat. You can fill that out if this is your first time um, or if you just hadn't filled that card out yet. Gives us a couple of ways to get in contact with you. Take that card to the back table. Uh, drop it in the black box. Somebody will be there to exchange that card for a Third Cliff Bakery gift card as our thank you for you being here this morning. Also have a couple of other cards in your seat, a prayer card, a next step card, if you're looking to have our our, our pastors pray for you, or if you're ready to take a next step, whether that's to follow Jesus, get involved with a group, whatever that might be, you can fill that card out and uh, take that back to the table. Um, our values as a church are the gospel, community, and mission. Gospel literally means good news. Uh, we were separated from God because of our simple choices and actions and desires. It goes very deep. It's not just what we do. It goes into the very core of who we are. And so, and so there's no way for us to work our way out of the hole we're in. There's no way for us to do more good than bad. Uh, we need a Savior. And so God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins so that whoever places their faith and trust in Christ alone can have their sins forgiven. And if you've not entered into that relationship, uh, find Pastor Matt right after the service. He'd love to talk with you about how to... Uh, enter into that relationship with Jesus today. Secondly is community. God has given us a community as the church, as people from every walk of life and background and ethnicity, and, and we're brought together as a new people, as, as a people we celebrate uh, every tribe, tongue, and nation uh, worshiping Jesus together. And so we celebrate this on Sunday, but we also celebrate this in community groups that meet throughout the week, uh, small groups of 6 to 12 adults who get together uh, encourage each other, help each other, love trust, and follow jesus more uh, and, um, and care for one another, serve their neighbors and so if you 're not in involved with a community group yet, um, there are some sign ups on the back table in the in the little entryway area. Uh, be sure to sign up today we 'll get you connected to a group uh, as uh, as quickly as possible um, and then lastly, mission God created us to Share his word, share his good news with other people, and so we do this through living lives shaped by the gospel, by declaring the gospel, uh, but one way we also do this is through church planting. Uh, we believe in church planting as a church we 're the product of a church plant uh, of church planting. Uh, other churches have believed in what God is doing here in Boston, and they 've supported that and gotten behind that financially by sending teams. but also we want to be a church that plants churches uh, we don 't want to be a dead end or a cul de sac for the great commission. We want to continue to plant more churches in greater Boston and beyond. And so one way we do this is through some of our partnerships, and that one is through the Harbor Network. The Harbor Network is a church planning network designed uh, to help uh, launch, lead, and multiply healthy churches. And so we are a part of that. There have been a great blessing to us uh, personally, but as pastors to shape us and help us seek renewal so that we can plant more churches in our city. There are uh, three Harbor Network churches in Boston. Uh, Three of our City on a Hill congregations are part of Harbor Network. And we hope to long-term see more churches planted through Harbor. And so this week, you could be praying for that, praying for what God may do in us to raise up church planters as we see God bringing people from other parts of our city that there may be an opportunity to plant life-giving churches in every neighborhood. I have a vision. I would love to see there be a, a gospel-preaching church within walking distance of every person in, in, the great, in greater Boston. I think that would be an incredible vision to see that. I think that would change our city. Uh, a couple of announcements. I mentioned signing up for a CG. Be sure to do that. Uh, community group. Uh, Coming up on the 27th, we have our next newcomer dinner. So if you're fairly new to City on a Hill uh, and you're just wanting to get to know a few people, come to dinner at our house. We'll cook for you. Don't let that scare you. Um, We do a pretty good job. Amy does a better job than me, but it'll be good, I promise. And so a good way to get connected, uh, maybe meet a few people, and also we'll give you a couple of next steps that you might be able to take um, if, if so interested Um, And so be sure to sign up for that on our event page, coahforesthills.org, and just click on the events tab. Uh, Then coming up on the 4th, we're having our next member class. And so if you've been here a little while and you've been wanting to take the next step toward membership, um, or if you're interested in just learning more about what City on the Hill believes, this is the next step for you. Be sure to come to that membership class. Um, Again, you can sign up on the the website on the event page. Uh, And then we have a couple of study options coming up that we'll mention uh, next week uh, in more detail. I'm going to read from the Scriptures this morning, and so uh, we're going to be reading from Genesis chapter 12, uh, verses 10 through 13, verse 1. And so when I'm done, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and I have you respond by saying, thanks be to God. Chapter 12, verse 10, now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say, you are my sister, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys and male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go." And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. Now last week we introduced you to Abram and his family. A little bit about Abram. He is from the line of Shem, which was one of Noah's sons, tracking all the way back to Adam. And there's been this line of this familial line throughout the book of Genesis that's eventually going to lead to a Savior. And so along the way, we get to see this messed up, jacked up family um, that God calls to himself. So last week, we saw how God called Abram, who was not pursuing the Lord. He was far away from God's presence, and yet God came to him, pursued him, called him to himself, and God made a covenant with Abram and said, I'm going to come to you, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to give you a land that you and your descendants can live in, I'm going to give you a nation that's going to be birthed out of you, and I'm going to give you a name, I'm going to make your name great among the nations. And so God promised to bless Abraham if he followed his call. And we see Abraham's response, that Abraham obeys by faith. He trusts God, he obeys, he leaves his home, he leaves what's comfortable, he leaves the known for the unknown, believing that God is going to come through on his promises and that God is going to bless him. He is the picture of faith, he's the example of faith, and for all of us, we would do well to have faith like Abraham. If we have faith like Abraham, that we trust God at his word, we look at God's word, we see what it says, and we obey it, we would see this does lead to flourishing, it leads to blessing. And so it's surprising as we read these words at the end of Genesis chapter 12, beginning of chapter 13, that Abram moves from faith to failure at rapid speed. Last chapter, we're talking about how faithful he was, and and he was an example of faith, and here he fails. And it's almost like, bro, what are you doing? What, What led you to this place to make such a foolish decision? And it's easy for us to look at this from the outside, looking in, and see that we would never make the same mistake. Like, I don't think I'm in any danger of saying that Amy is my sister to get out of trouble, right? I don't think any of us would look at this and say, we're going to make the same mistake as Abram. But if we're honest and we approach the text humbly, we realize we're not a whole lot different. We're not much different than Abram, because when was the last time that you failed? When was the last time that you failed at something? And failure is not when something goes wrong. It's not when something happens that's outside of your control, but it's when you you chose to disobey God at his word, you chose to live in a way that was contrary to what God wanted for you. Thankfully, nobody wrote about it like they did for Abram so that billions of people could read about Abram's failures. Can you imagine if like, you know, the meeting you had at work last week where you just lost your noodle, it got blasted out in holy scripture for everybody to read for eternity. Like, aren't you glad that didn't happen? But think about your last failure. You don't have to call it out. This isn't like share time. Um, maybe it was at work. Maybe you, you just kind of cut corners at work or you just, you're not giving it your all and, and you really royally screwed up. Maybe you lost it on somebody and you just said things you didn't want to say and you didn't believe that you could, could recover from. Maybe, maybe it's the shame of a moral failure that you've done something you know is contrary to God's word and you're just really, really struggling with it. What caused you to fail? What led to you failing? Now, sometimes it's easy to pinpoint one event. Uh, There was a man named Howard Dean during the 2004. Uh, presidential campaign. Some of you already, you already know where the story's going. Uh, 2004, this guy is one of the frontrunners. It's he and John Kerry. And Howard Dean has just lost the Iowa caucus, by, but, but barely lost it. And he's talking to his supporters at a rally, and he's trying to get them really riled up. And he's like, we're going to go to New Hampshire. We're going to go here. We're going to go there. And he lets out this scream that has been called the Dean scream, where he's trying to say, yeah. And he goes, ha! In that moment, you watched one failure completely tank a political career. Sometimes it's easy to point to one mistake that tanks your life, that tanks a a moment or a failure. Other times it's a series of events. It's, it's a series of, of poor choices. It's a series of disobedient moments, and I think of Blockbuster Video when I think of this. Blockbuster Video was premier; they were the place to go in the late '90s, early 2000s, if you wanted a video or a DVD, and you actually you actually had to go buy, get one from a, from a location. And in t- the year 2000, they had the opportunity to buy Netflix for thirty million dollars. Massive mistake. They were way behind on the streaming. streaming. There's so many little mistakes they made along the way that led to their demise. But really, we can boil down every failure, whether it's a big failure or a small failure, down to two things. Lost focus on what the vision is, what matters most, and then secondly, being driven by fear. Most poor decisions and failures come down to losing focus on what matters and being driven By fear. And we see this in Abram's life. And when we look at Abram's life, we actually see how it informs our failures as well. So, firstly, let's look at how Abram lost focus. Abram lost focus upon the Lord and his promises. He loses focus on the the promises that God has made to Abram, that one day he would have a family, he would have a land, he would have a name, he'd be blessed beyond his imagination. And then in chapter 12, verse 10, we see things fall apart, where it says, now there was a famine in the land. Famine had wrecked the land that the people were in. It wrecked the land. And this is really common in the ancient world because there was no Backup plan. You had if a wind came along or it didn't rain, you didn't have crops, you didn't eat. There was there was no grocery store that you could go to. And we saw a little bit of this during COVID because you could everybody kept talking about the supply chain. Nobody could go into factories and work as the supply chain began to back up. It became harder to get groceries. There was no toilet paper for like three months. Like, we were getting backed up. So imagine living in a world where you don't have the industry that we have today, and you are completely 100% dependent upon the crops that you grow. So here's Abram, no backup plan, no food assistance program, and it's a famine. And it's not just a famine, but if you look at the end of verse 10, it says for the famine was severe in the land. This was a famine unlike most others. And so how does Abram respond? What does Abram choose to do? It says here that he chooses to go down to Egypt to sojourn there, to, to be there for a little while and kind of wait this thing out. Egypt tended to be a place that had lots and lots and lots of abundant provision. And on the surface, this makes total sense. This makes absolute 100% sense, right? If you lose your job, you're going to go do whatever it takes to go find a new job. And if you're not committed to a place, you may say, well, I'm just going to throw my resume out anywhere, and I'm going to go anywhere I possibly can to get a job. There's no backup. There's no safety net. He's out of work. He's thinking, I've got to do this to provide for my family. And on the surface, it seems perfectly justifiable to do. It seems like it's the perfectly natural and practical thing to do for him to leave Negev and go to Egypt in order to provide. But notice what Abram fails to do. What does Abram fail to do here that he did twice at the end of our passage last week? Chapter 12, verse 7, it says, So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him, and from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. He prayed, he sought the Lord, he came after him, and then made a decision. You see this again in chapter 12, verse 8. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord, and Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. What does Abram not do before he goes to Egypt? He doesn't worship, he doesn't pray, he doesn't seek the Lord. Here in the midst of famine, it seems from the text, from the silence of the text, that he never stops to worship. He never stops to consider that God may actually provide for him in his moment of deepest need. It's clear that God would provide for him because God had provided for him every step of the way. Alistair Beck points out that he could have prayed for food. He could have prayed for God to miraculously provide for him. He could have asked for help. Begg goes on to say that trusting and praying go hand in hand. When we say that we trust God, we pray, putting ourselves in a position of need, saying, God, I believe that you're going to provide for me. Life hits hard, and it's easy to lose focus on God and his promises. And what did God do? Just a few verses earlier, Five times God said, I will bless you, I will make you, I will give you. Five times God said, I will provide for everything that you need. See, when hard times and difficulties come into our lives, or just a seemingly practical decision, it can shift our eyes from Him, from His goodness, from His glory, from His power, from His provision to our circumstances, And we tend to trust God for the big stuff, but not for the everyday stuff. We tend to believe that God can save our sins, but not that He could provide a job. We tend to believe that God could could rescue us, but that He is not big enough to get us from Sunday to Monday. And we think that we're on our own. We think, I am all alone in these everyday decisions, so we tend to turn to our own wisdom. Now, human wisdom is not a bad thing. God gave you a brain. He gave you the ability to have rational thought and to think things through and to reason and discover and, and make decisions. You are, have been made in the image of God that way. But human wisdom is limited. Our wisdom is limited, especially when it's done in isolation. We're just kind of making these decisions on our own. But sometimes it might feel like that's all you've got. You know, you're not like Abram. You don't have God speaking to you and saying, go to this place and do this thing. Sometimes it feels like you're sitting all alone and you've just got to make a decision and you got to do the best that you possibly can. And you may be thinking, why can't it be like Abram? Why can't it be like where God speaks directly to me and there's a voice from heaven and I'm driving down, you know, Boylston Street and all of a sudden it happened? Like, why can't that happen? It wasn't normal for Abram either. How many times did God speak directly to Abram? The text says four times over almost three decades. So, what that means is God broke in in a special manner and spoke to Abram four times, decades apart. You know what Abram was doing most of the time? The exact same thing you and I are doing remembering and resting in the promises of God and trying to discern what God wanted in seeking God and asking him for guidance by focusing on his word and his promises. And in fact, you and I have way more insight than Abram ever had. We, We have the scriptures. If you want to hear God speak to you, it's right here. God has spoken through his perfect word. And we can turn to God as we make decisions. We can seek wisdom from his word. I want you to think about the last big decision you made. Did you take time to pray? Did you sit down and seek God? Not not seek God as in like, okay, God, I've made this decision. Now I want you to bless it. But God, I want to seek you and I want to submit myself to your will. And I want to give this to you in such a way that whatever you decide is, is what's good. Did you get counsel from other Christians when you made a big decision? Our tendency is like Abram, is to move forward on what seems prudent, to move forward on what seems practical, and not to ask God, what do you want? When it it gets hard, do you ask God to provide? Abram was called by God to a place, yet doesn't seek his will for how to live. And what he kind of does is he sort of slaps God's will on the end of an already made decision. And we so often do that because we assume God doesn't care about the little stuff. But God does care about this food because what did Jesus say is, you don't have to be anxious because I know every hair upon your head. I care for you because God cares. He will give you the guidance that you need. So here's how we can turn our focus to God as we're trying to make wise decisions. Just four things. First of all is seek him in his word. God. The Bible says, if you seek the Lord, he will be found. He's not hiding. It's not a game of where's Waldo. Nobody remembers those books. Seek him in his word. He wants to be found. He will give you the wisdom you need. Submit your plans to him. Don't come with already made plans. Submit them to him and say, Lord, what do you want? What brings you glory? Because whatever is for God's glory will ultimately be for our good. Share the process with others. One of the best things you can do, even if, even if it ends up being a decision that's tough and hard, share that process with other people. There is, there's fruit that can be had in community as you wrestle through decisions with people. And then lastly, stay firmly rooted in his promises. What has God told you about himself and what that means for you? If you're called to a place, he'll provide the relationships that God has brought into your life. He will give you the grace that you need to give out to others and the grace that you need to receive from others. You're facing a tough decision. He will give you all the insight that you need to make that decision. So losing focus caused Abram to make some really bad decisions. We're going to get into those. And the reason is, is Abram was driven by fear. So he loses focus upon the Lord and he begins to be driven by fear. Fear. And I don't think the timing of Abram's plan was a mistake. Look at chapter 12, verse 11, when he was about to enter Egypt. He's about to enter Egypt and he goes, oh no. It hits him. It's like if you've ever seen Arrested Development, there's a running gag with Joe Bluth of I have made a huge mistake. It's the same thing. He's looking at the land and saying, I have made a huge mistake. He's in it now. There's there's no turning back now, and he feels like he has no other recourse but to move forward and come up with a deceptive plan driven by fear. He forgets that the Lord would rescue him in this moment, and fear can drive us to make all sorts of deceptive plans. The first way we see him do this is flattery. Look at the end of verse 11. He said to his wife Sarai, or to Sarai his wife, I know that you were a woman beautiful in appearance. He drops a little bass in his voice. He's like, hey, girl, I know you've been riding a donkey for several hundred miles, but you're looking good today. I want you to know that. I'm going to need you to pretend to be my sister. Like, Like, this is a new one. This is a whole new plan that I don't know how he thought was going to work. He flatters her. One way that we can enter into deceiving people is to use flattering words. And this is often driven by fear because we're afraid that a situation is not going to work out in our favor or we're not going to get what we want. So what we tend to do is use words to flatter other people. It's easy to turn to here to deceive them into giving us what we want. He flatters. We, then we see him break into some half lies. Now, it gets weird here. I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you. If you look at, um, he says, hey, he says, say you're my sister. Uh, but if you look at chapter 20, verse 12, we see that this is a half lie. Um, they actually did have the same father, a different mother. Um, it's weird, I'll admit it. Um, but the Bible shows people as they are and doesn't clean things up. This is a great question for, a, we'll do a Q&A again in a, in a, a couple weeks, a few weeks. Uh, but we later see that this idea was condemned by the law. When Moses wrote the law, he said, you shouldn't marry your sister because it, that doesn't lead to flourishing. Uh, he marries his half-sister. And also we see that God came to Abram after they were married. It was a very common practice at the time and God still used broken and messed up people. But the point is, is that Abram used this to justify his lie. He says, well, you know, you're kind of my sister. He's thinking, I didn't technically lie. And what happens when we use half-truths or half-lies is they can be used to deceive, and they deceive because they work because they're believable. It'd be like if, if I noticed that your cell phone screen was cracked. You know, I'm trying to come across like, a, hey, I noticed a problem for you. But if I don't tell you that I'm the one who dropped it, that's a problem. I'm telling you a half-truth, a half-lie, because a half-truth is a whole lie. And it can be the most harmful because when you are asking someone to trust you, you're asking them to be vulnerable in such a way that they open themselves up to you. And so half-truth or half-lies can be the most damaging. So he, he lies, but then he tries to rationalize his lie. Verse 13, say, you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. You know, it's better for both of us if you just go along with this plan. Look, they're going to kill me. And like, you don't know what you're going to do without me. So I I can protect you and all of this. He He rationalizes this entire situation saying, what will happen to you if I'm gone? And what fear can do is it can make us rationalize and compromise on God's word so that we enter into a plan or into a scheme that doesn't please him. I have to do this in order to get this thing that I think is going to give me life. Because you know what? It's not a big deal. Everybody's doing it. I know the Bible says that I shouldn't do that or I shouldn't compromise in this area, but God wouldn't want me to be unhappy, right? He wouldn't want me to live without that desire if it's never satisfied. So we we can rationalize like Abram. And the last way he does this is through control. Look at verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. So he was right. They were going to see her and see that she was beautiful. But what Abram's trying to do here is he's trying to control the situation. There's some thought, some indication that in the ancient world, a brother had a say in who the sister could marry. And we see this in Genesis chapter 24 with Laban and Rebekah, where Laban was the one that the servant had to go to in order to ask for her hand in marriage. So what Abram is probably thinking in this moment is, I can just tell everybody no. I can control this situation because I, in such a way that I'll just spurn all their advances no matter what they do. I'll say, no, no, not, it's not going to happen. You know, for whatever reason, she's washing her hair tonight, it's just not going to work. And he's going to control the situation. But the problem with trying to control or manipulate a situation is what happens when it gets out of hand? What happens when the plan falls apart? He didn't expect Pharaoh to take notice. Verse 15, And when the princess or the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. He couldn't tell Pharaoh no. In that land, the Pharaoh could marry whoever he wanted to marry. Any woman that he wanted to marry was by law required to come into his house, and because he was trying to control this situation, Abram's plan falls apart. Decisions driven by fear are never good decisions. So, How does fear drive your decision-making? Maybe you're the person who you just try to plan your way out of it. You've got a spreadsheet, and everything's weighted, and it's got formulas in it, Like for our church softball team, it's the nerdiest church softball team in the world. And the guy who created this spreadsheet, there's formulas upon formulas upon formulas. And if you know anything about baseball or softball, everything's metrics. We have a COA metric. There's a metric for like your numerical value to the softball team. Some of you are like that about your life decisions. You're like, I've got a whole metric and a formula. And if it comes out this way, then that's the decision I need to make. Here's my three-step strategy. Maybe you're a flatterer. Maybe you've become really, really good at flattering with your words to get what you want. Maybe you tend toward half lies or half truths. You're good at keeping up appearances just enough to keep people at arm's length instead of being fully known. Maybe you rationalize the things that are going on in your life that's not hurting anyone and No one really cares and it's not that bad or I deserve this thing. Maybe you are someone who tends to manipulate and control situations for others, but the problem with lies is that they are exhausting. Because in order to keep up lies, you have to keep working. And what they eventually do is they consume you. They wreck your life. Trying to control things wrecks you and it hurts others, but the Lord kindly finds us out in our ill-prepared plans. And what Abram missed and what's so easy for you and I to miss is it's never too late to do the right thing. It's never too late. It's never too late to turn around. It's never too late to admit. It's never too late to confess. It's never too late to change the direction that you're going. Confessing sin may cost you. It may cost you reputation. It may cost you status. It may cost you trust with another person. Changing direction on a plan may cost you time and money and energy, but it's always worth it. Because with the Lord, there is freedom and rest. And we can trust the Lord in our fears because God knows your family situation. He knows how much money's in the bank. He knows the troubles you have at work. He knows the desires. He knows the things that you lay awake at night thinking about. So why do we think that the solution to our problems lies outside of his wisdom and his will? Well, you trust him. He always promises to restore us and to receive those who come to him and put us on the right path. Abram had the opportunity to turn to the Lord, but notice what he does in verse 16. Abraham compromised for financial security. Verse 16, and for her sake... Pharaoh dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Pharaoh pays the bride price to Abram. And again, there were no banks back then. So the way that you flexed how much money you had is how how, how big your herd was. That's how you flex, how big your crew was around you. And so overnight, Abram becomes a very wealthy man. He becomes a very rich man overnight. And so this seems a strange part of the story. It seems like Abram prospered because of his disobedience. Things seem to have worked out. Well, not exactly. This cost Abram dearly. He almost lost his wife. He dishonored her when he was supposed to cherish her. He put her in danger and in a compromising place. And I'm sure it absolutely shattered trust. He abdicated his responsibility to love and to care for her. And what this shows us is that our decisions affect other people. Everything you do affects other people. When you prioritize security and comfort over obeying the Lord, it hurts other people. One way that it's easy to do this is our tendency to isolate ourselves our tendency to kind of hold up in our house instead of stretching ourselves to be with other people. Listen, one claim that I think we all say, and I think it's just like a, it's a default. It's like, hey, how are you doing? I'm busy. That's not how you're doing. That's not the state of your heart. That's how, that's how hectic your life feels. We, we say we're busy is a way to kind of keep people at an arm's length. I think some ways to, to kind of prove that we're valuable, because if I say I'm busy, it means that I have a lot going on. But does your life allow you to love and serve and bear the burdens of other people? And either maybe you actually are too busy and you need to streamline some things in your life, or you need to ask God to give you a heart and desire to do His will. Our decisions affect other people. It didn't just cost him his wife nearly, it also cost his integrity. Pharaoh finds out that the Lord afflict through this, through the affliction the Lord brings, chapter 12, verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. He figures out through some sort of disease, possibly leprosy, that something has gone wrong. And he realizes that what, everything went wrong when he brought Sarai into his house. And so God uses this unbelieving person to shame Abram, verse, chapter 12, verse 18. So Abram call, or Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? God uses this unbelieving person to convict and rebuke Abram who was called by God. He's angry and he repeats this. He's, he's very, very upset. And there's a really stinging line here. That, if you caught this, He says, now then, here is your wife. Almost like saying, you should have known better than to do this. And he has him escorted out. Does the way that you live your life look like what you say you believe? Are, Are you living convictionally? Would your unbelieving neighbors and coworkers and friends look at your life and say, this is a person who is submitted to the lordship of Jesus? This is a person who is living differently for the sake of the kingdom. It cost him his integrity. Thirdly, it caused strife with him a lot. We're going to look at that more in depth next week. But there was so much strife and they had so much stuff and so many people, they had to separate and this led to some real pain for them. But the last thing that it caused was it caused a lot of heartache for their family especially Sarai, shortcuts like this often lead to long-term pain. About 15 years down the road, remember, they were given servants, right? Remember, one of those servants' name was Hagar. And do you know where Hagar was from? Egypt, meaning that Hagar likely came from this situation. And this this failure caused all sorts of heartache for Abram, for Sarai, and for Hagar, and it shows us that shortcuts never work. God promises to provide for us. So, that, Where have you settled? Where have you, have you compromised? Where are you doing that? Are, are you cutting corners at your job, thinking through relationships? Are you using people? Or are you just not seeking? Maybe you're seeking a dating relationship and you're not seeking someone with godly character. Maybe you just want to be further down the road than you actually are, and you're trying to force it. Abram tried to force the blessing that God promised. So how does God salvage this? We all fail. All of us, like Abram, fail. And thankfully, we're not left in our failures, because while Abram failed, lastly, God's plan does not fail. God does not fail. God uses this situation, chapter 13, verse 1, So Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. God used this situation for his glory to fulfill his will. And so Abraham's disobedience doesn't stop God's plan. It just leads to unnecessary pain for Abraham and other people. God is sovereign. There's nothing that he can't work through, but Abram is also responsible. And what this shows us is our decisions that we make that are contrary to the will of God or to the word of God don't thwart God's plan. They just lead to pain for us. His decisions led to this mess, but here's the good news. God can still use you despite your dumbest mistakes and your gravest sins. God can still work In you, because ultimately the hope isn't you. It's not you or I or our goodness or our ability to do right. Remember that God is going to use this family to bring Jesus into the world. And here's how Jesus lived in a way that Abram could never live. Jesus never lost focus on God. What did Jesus do when he was being tempted by the devil on the mountain? Jesus rejected riches, he rejected earthly power. And he kept his eyes focused upon the Lord. Jesus always lived to please him. He was not given to fear. When Jesus is in the boat in the storm, he goes down and takes a nap. He's listening to like his white noise or his green noise on the call map. He's laying down there. He is at peace with the world. And Jesus came so that you and I could have that perfect peace. Here's the best news, that Jesus didn't sell out his bride, the church, like Abram sold out Sarai for his own gain. Jesus laid everything down on the cross so that you and I could have everything in him. And here's what this means, that you can turn to Jesus to help you. You can turn to Jesus to guide you without fear because he will lead you to life. And we can live lives focused on God and His glory, led by the Spirit, believing this will lead to our good. And so what this means for our church community, for City on a Hill, is is what if we were committed to live our lives and make decisions based on what gives God the most glory, not what makes us comfortable? I, I don't want us to be a people who make decisions as a church based on fear or what's practical, but what moves the gospel forward for the good of our neighbors and friends? What if we were people more shaped by spiritual practice that prioritizes time with the Lord than the rhythms of our culture? That's one reason that we developed this discipleship guide. There are more copies of it in the back. I I highly suggest, it's not too late, you're only two weeks into the year, grab a copy of this in the back and and fill out the back part. Build some rhythms in your life of word and prayer where you're, you're, you're not given into the lies of culture. Build practice of Sabbath rest instead of running endlessly after purpose and meaning. What if we gave ourselves away for the sake of mission in our city? What if we loved and served our neighbors at a cost to us? What if we shared the gospel without fear? And for you personally, whatever decision that you're facing, whatever you're trying to wrestle through, do you believe you have the peace that Jesus offers? That you can make that decision by focusing your heart and your eyes upon him without fear. Let's pray.